Welcome to the Society of Pediatric Sedation podcast, a podcast dedicated to those immersed in pediatric procedural sedation. My name is Pradeep Kamath, and I'm an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine and a pediatric critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Hello, my name is Amber Rogers, and I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics and anesthesia at Baylor College of Medicine and a pediatric sedation physician at Texans Children's Hospital where I'm also the co-chair of the TCH Sedation Oversight Committee. Today's sedation podcast is dedicated to fasting before procedural sedation. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Mala Bhatt, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Ottawa. She is the Research Director for the Division of Emergency Medicine and a Pediatric Emergency Medicine Physician at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Dr. Bott is a member of the Society for Pediatric Sedation. Her primary research interest is in the safety of emergency department procedural sedation. She has published multiple articles in peer-reviewed journals on sedation-related topics, including on fasting before procedural sedation, a topic we are interested in discussing today. Let's start with our patient case scenarios. Uh, The parents of an 18-month-old girl who is scheduled for a brain MRI tomorrow for a focal seizure which occurred three days ago, asking if they have to keep their child NPO for so long, and is there really any science behind this practice of fasting before sedation? Also, we want to discuss the case of a seven-year-old boy who was brought to the emergency department after an hour uh, when he fell off his bike, uh, resulting in a right forearm fracture. The patient's forearm fracture requires reduction and casting under procedural sedation. The patient just ate a peanut butter sandwich about an hour before the fall. So in today's SPS sedation podcast, we will be discussing on how previous fasting guidelines came about and what is changing about that. Dr. Bott, welcome to this SPS sedation podcast. We're really happy you're here. What do you think of the above two case scenarios with respect to the history of fasting guidelines that we've followed for so long? Thanks, Pradeep and Amber, for having me on the SPS podcast. I'm really delighted to be here especially since pre-procedural fasting requirements and guidelines are really one of my favorite topics. I'm really looking forward to the conversation, but first I should mention that I don't have any conflicts of interest or financial relationships to disclose. So getting into it, um, with respect to the history of fasting guidelines, our understanding of aspiration and its risk factors has really evolved over the last several decades. Historically, the risk of aspiration was thought to be directly related to the duration of fasting from solids and liquids and guidelines were put in place with the goal of reducing gastric volumes to no more than 0.4 mils per kilogram and ensuring that a pH was greater than 2.5 for patients undergoing operative or general anesthesia. But it's really become clear that these benchmarks were arbitrary and were based on one experiment in a single monkey. Clinical studies have actually shown that the minimum gastric volume required to aspirate are significantly greater, but the precise gastric volume placing patients at risk is still not known. Well, we'll discuss the research that's been done more recently, but for now, let's talk about the cases. For the 18-month-old girl who's to undergo a sedated MRI, I would recommend keeping her fasted from solids for at least six hours. She should be allowed to drink six hours for solids, but she should be allowed to drink clear liquids up to an hour prior to sedation. We know from recent work that fasting itself is not an independent risk factor for aspiration, but in this case, there's little downside to following guidelines as it's an elective procedure, and we should make every effort to allow the stomach to empty prior to the sedation to minimize risk. 
Now, the scenario of the seven-year-old boy with a forearm fracture who has eaten just prior to his ED presentation is very common, and we see this every day in the emergency department. Patients undergoing sedation in the ED are thought to have a different baseline risk compared to other sedation settings outside of the operating room, where patients are virtually all healthy, um, they undergo very short, painful procedures, and ketamine monotherapy is the most commonly used medication in the ED setting. In repeated studies in the emergency department, no association has been found between fasting status from solids or liquids and patient outcomes. So based on this body of evidence, the American College of Emergency Physicians does not recommend delaying sedations based solely on fasting times. So in this case, we would sedate the seven-year-old boy as soon as the sedation and procedure teams were ready. So Mala, what is the risk for aspiration during procedural sedation? Well, we still don't know the exact incidence of aspiration, but a recent comprehensive review of literature from 1985 to 2016 by Steve Green and colleagues identified 32 published cases of aspiration in children. Seven of these kids underwent endoscopy, and none of the children were deemed low risk as they had ASA classifications of three or higher. What's important to note, though, that even when aspiration does occur, the children do well. There have never been any deaths in children from aspiration during sedation. Mala, we've talked a lot about different kinds of NPO and specifically related to clear liquids. What is the aspiration risk for children prior to sedation or anesthesia when drinking clear liquids? Well, again, we don't know the precise fasting durations that render a stomach empty because the recommended intervals are really based on gastric physiology and expert opinion. But studies show that clear liquids and gastric secretions follow first-order kinetics. So that means that they move out of the stomach rapidly, most within 15 minutes, but definitely out by 90 minutes, regardless of fluid composition. There's evidence that indicates that shorter fasting times for clear liquids does not substantially change aspiration risk for healthy patients. So anesthesia societies from Great Britain, France, New Zealand, and Australia have all recommended that there should be no restrictions for clear liquids up to an hour prior to elective general anesthesia. And I think it's a really important step as this represents the biggest departure from the ASA fasting guidelines, which have seen very little change over the past 30 years. I should also probably clarify what's meant by clear liquids. These would be fluids such as water, carbonated beverages, clear tea or black coffee with no cream or milk, and clear juices without any pulp. Mala, what are the advantages slash disadvantages of prolonged fasting in children with respect to clears? Well, I'm not sure that there are any distinct advantages to prolonged NPO time for clear liquids other than providing more flexibility for anesthesia scheduling. However, on the flip side, the majority of children report being extremely hungry or thirsty when they present for their procedure after fasting for the recommended duration. We know that fasting can promote dehydration and hypoglycemia in young children due to smaller glycogen stores, and prolonged fasting has been associated with irritability, decreased sedation efficacy, and increased sedation failures. But perhaps the greatest issue with fasting guidelines is that children often fast for much longer than the recommended six, four, and two that is recommended for solids, milk, and clear liquids. In some cases, families are instructed not to let their child eat or drink after midnight to ensure that there's no misunderstanding and that their child has fasted adequately when they present for their procedure. But unexpected delays, as you know, can often occur, 
and they result in patients having to wait longer than expected for their procedures, which unintentionally extends their fast as well. Even in institutions with a one-hour fasting requirement for clear liquids, most children actually fast longer for longer than required. And in one study in a single institution, a dedicated multi-year quality improvement initiative was required to reduce the fasting time for clear liquids in patients who were presenting for elective procedures. In this study, the biggest difference was made when hospital staff were able to offer children a drink when they arrived at the hospital for their procedure. That's really interesting. So what are the current guidelines that are used in procedural sedation? Well, most sedation programs follow the American Society of Anesthesiologists guidelines from 2011. These guidelines stipulate a minimum of fa- minimum fasting of two hours for clear liquids, four hours for breast milk, six hours for infant formula and light meals, which are described as toast and clear liquids. But meals that contain fried or fatty foods or meat may prolong gastric emptying and require longer fasting times of approximately eight hours. These guidelines were created initially for healthy patients undergoing elective procedures under general anesthesia. However, the ASA and the American Academy of Pediatrics both recommend that patients follow these same guidelines regardless of setting when deeply sedated if they are unable to maintain verbal contact when moderately sedated. They do state for emergent sedation that the practitioner who's delivering the sedation must balance the depth of sedation against the risk of aspiration. So essentially, these societies recommend following the same fasting requirements as for general anesthesia, even though patients sedated outside of the operating room are at lower risk. In general anesthesia, most of the aspiration events occur during intubation and extubation. But as you know, these events are not routinely planned or performed in procedural sedation. Um, In addition, the use of emetogenic inhalational agents, prolonged bag mask ventilation, and the use of muscle relaxants are also common in general anesthesia, but not common during procedural sedation. So while most elective sedations do follow the guidelines, we recognize that patients in these outside of the OR settings are at lower risk. And I think that we should have a less dogmatic approach to the guidelines if there are small violations to the recommended fasting durations. Marla, you published a large study in JAMA Pediatrics in 2018 examining the association between pre-procedural fasting duration and the incidence of sedation-related adverse uh, outcomes during emergency department sedation of children. Uh, Can you shed some light on some of the important findings in that study? Sure. So um, we enrolled just over 6,000 kids from six different Canadian pediatric emergency departments, and we looked to see whether there was an association between the duration a patient had fasted prior to their procedure and any sedation-related adverse event. We specifically looked at the occurrence of aspiration, vomiting, and serious adverse events. In our cohort, almost half of the patients, 48% of them, did not meet MPO guidelines for solids, and 5% didn't meet guidelines for liquids. But despite this, we didn't have any cases of aspiration in our patients. This is really in keeping with the prior ED literature because there have never been any cases of aspiration reported with parenteral procedural sedation in the emergency department setting. We also did an adjusted analysis and found that the odds of experiencing a sedation-related adverse event was not in any way associated with fasting duration. When we graphed our adjusted probability models, we saw that the slope of the line was completely flat. 
showing us that for each additional hour of fasting, the odds of experiencing an adverse outcome did not change. And again, our findings are similar to previous ED studies, which showed that delaying sedation to meet fasting guidelines in the emergency department did not change patient outcomes. So we really like the ASEP guidelines. We feel like they're based on the best available ED evidence, and they direct us not to delay sedation based solely on fasting time. Mala, what do you gather from the large study published by Beach et al. using the large database from the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium in 2016? Well, Amber, this is one of my favorite studies. It is truly the best available study reporting on the association between aspiration and patient and procedure factors. Beach and um, other colleagues from the PSRC reported on nearly 110,000 sedations where fasting status was documented. And amongst these patients, about 25% of them did not fulfill fasting guidelines at the time that they were sedated. In this cohort, there were 10 aspiration events. All 10 of these patients had a significant underlying diagnosis, and almost half of them were sedated for radiologic procedures. And most notably, 8 of 10 of these patients were compliant with fasting guidelines. So the PSRC investigators concluded that the incidence of aspiration was similar whether children had fasted or not, and that fasting status was not an independent risk factor for aspiration. I think also from this study, what we learned is the best estimate that we have of the incidence of aspiration for children who are sedated outside of the operating room, and it's approximately 0.7 per 10,000 sedations. Uh, For for our listeners, the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, or PSRC, is the research arm of the Society for Pediatric Sedation. It collects data from over 56 large sedation programs uh, in the United States and has a collection of over half a million sedation anesthesia encounters to date. Uh, So, Mala, my next question is, are there certain patients or conditions for which you would recommend uh, rigid fasting strategies? Well, that's a great question. And in fact, the BEACH study gave us some information about this because they were also able to identify risk factors for other major complications other than aspiration alone. So from the BEACH study and others, we now know that children under a year of age, those with greater systemic illness, so defined as an ASA physical status classification of three or greater, those who have obstructive sleep apnea, a history of snoring, major obesity, or conditions that slow gastric emptying are at higher risk of aspiration, and I would recommend strict adherence to fasting guidelines for these patients. Another category of patients at higher risk are those undergoing endoscopy or bronchoscopy, and again, I would recommend following guidelines for these patients as well. It might also be worth mentioning that in rare cases, a patient or the procedure may be deemed inappropriate for sedation. That is, delaying a procedure would not necessarily mitigate the risk. So at times, patients may require referral to anesthesiology for definitive airway management in order for the procedure to be performed safely. The risks and benefits of performing a procedure in a high-risk patient under sedation outside of the operating room setting should be discussed with patients and families, and you you can arrive at a shared decision with your families. Mala, with so many of the recent fasting and procedural sedation and anesthesia publications reporting that fasting is not a risk factor for aspiration, how will that change our practice going forward? 
Well, I think this is really important. And I think that this is where the most work needs to be done because anesthesiologists have long viewed pre-procedural fasting requirements as incontrovertible. But in recent years, um, as our understanding of aspiration has grown beyond the simple association between last oral intake and the risk of aspiration, there's been a mounting movement from within the specialty questioning the validity of these dogmatic conditions. And the guidelines for clear fluid intake prior to elective procedures have been relaxed in Europe, Australia, and New Zealand based on convincing evidence. And I really hope that we in North America will soon follow. So what I think this means for us is that we need to evaluate patients on the basis of their individual and procedure-related risk and not simply as a function of when they last ate or drank. The ICAPS, or the International Committee for the Advancement of Procedural Sedation, has actually done exactly this. They have created the first recommendations for fasting specific to procedural sedation based on a review of all the available evidence and expert consensus. And what they provide are recommendations that are more nuanced and provide a graded fasting requirements for liquids and solids based on patient aspiration risk. Their recommendations for elective procedures in patients who are deemed to have negligible or mild risk factors are considerably shorter than from other specialty societies such as the ASA. And then they go on to suggest that patients with moderate risk factors should um, abide by standard fasting requirements for elective procedures. And perhaps anesthesia care should be considered for these patients if an emergent or urgent sedation is required. Dr. Bott, thanks for this excellent discussion on fasting. And now as we wrap up, would you mind just highlighting your personal clinical pearls with respect to fasting in procedural sedation? Hmm. So I think we've talked about a lot of them, but um, I would say the most important thing is to ha- to understand that NPO time on its own is not a predictor for aspiration so that we should be a little bit less dogmatic about our approach to fulfilling fasting guidelines. The fact that a child might have eaten a couple of goldfish crackers prior to sedation violating rules should not in itself negate our ability to sedate that child for the procedure. So I think that that is the overarching thing that I have learned from the research over the last decade. The second thing is to say that Patient risk is different in different settings. The emergency department is different than other uh, sedation areas. We must consider patient risk factors in addition to NPO time as well. So I think that those are the, the big things. And to be aware of the higher risk populations as we've just discussed. This concludes our episode today on fasting before procedural sedation. We thank Dr. Mala Butt for her expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in the short sedation podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. The SPS Sedation Podcast is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and Dr. Amber Rogers. Stay tuned for our next episode, and thank you, Dr. Bhatt.